0: On Wednesday, let's call it the budget, even though officially it's not. What would you like to see from Rishi Sunak? I've got a few ideas that could save every household several hundred pounds. We'll then talk about the PO protest going on in London today. Those 800 workers disgracefully sacked, being replaced by people from overseas being paid £1.89 per hour. Brexit was supposed to stop this sort of thing. And joining me, On Talking Pints, Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley, and we're going to talk with Riley, not just about his army career, but about what's going on in Ukraine right now, and what should we actually believe. Before all of that, let's get the news. Good evening. Well, the budget always used to be in March. It's now officially been shifted until the autumn. So what we get now is a spring statement. But be in no doubt, what is coming this Wednesday from Rishi Sunak in the House of Commons is the equivalent of a budget. And it's a very important budget. Now, in some ways, the economy is in better shape than many of us ever hoped it could be. That's certainly from a government perspective. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because income partly because rising prices, VAT, means more revenue. But actually, tax receipts are much better than the government, frankly, had expected. Unemployment is very low. It's below 4%, and many sectors actually struggling for staff. Add to that growth this year, which is 3.6%, which is better than expected, and the government boasting we've got the best growth rate in the G7. What they forget, of course, is that we had just about the worst one, last year. But all of those things are quite good news. But look ahead, and the growth forecast is a miserable 1.3% for next year and expected to stay at those pitiful levels for quite some time. Have a look at the cost of living crisis. There's no doubt we're facing the worst crisis in that regard since the 1970s, since the oil shock of 1973. The Chancellor, we're told is still going to stick with his with his growth um, forecasts and i'm not quite sure what he's going to do to change any of that he's going to raise national insurance we're told he may cut fuel duty uh, but if he does that that's already rather complex we already have the most complicated tax system in the world and it needs simplifying especially for businesses who spend far too much of their time dealing with administration, and we need real business reforms. And when I talk about that, I'm not talking about giant multinational companies. I'm talking about the 5.5 million people out there, some of you watching this program right now, who run their own businesses, act as sole traders. It is time for the Brexit dividend to be cashed in. Across sector after sector, there are so many EU rules that could be got rid of or simplified to allow people in business to go out, make money, and employ people. And we need to end green subsidies. Every household this year will pay several hundred pounds in those green subsidies that I talked about at length last week here on this programme. That would leave every household several hundred pounds a year better off, and in a slightly better position to face the undoubted tough times that are coming up ahead. That's my short little wish list. You tell me, what would you like to see in this spring statement? Farage, at GBnews.uk. Well, joining me to discuss this is Gerard Lyons, former economic advisor to Boris Johnson, amongst many other things. Uh, Gerard, good evening.
1: Good evening. Great to be on the show again.
0: Yeah, good to have you. As I say, in some ways, the Chancellor has more room for manoeuvre than perhaps he would have expected, say, six months
1: ago. That's correct. The economy, as you touched on, is in pretty strong shape. It has to be said that government borrowing is still high. But over the first 10 months of this fiscal year, it's half the level of a year ago. So it's clearly on an improving trend. So compared to six months ago, the Chancellor probably has about £25 billion more room to play with than he probably expected. Now, the two key issues this week, I would say first, issues linked to the war, and that's an immediate issue, whether it's to help refugees or increase defence spending. But the second issue that attracts most of the attention is to address the imminent cost of living crisis. And that cost of living crisis has three parts to it. Higher inflation, rising fuel and energy prices, and also higher taxes. The Chancellor can't address the inflation part. Therefore, this Wednesday, he has to address the other two parts, the rising energy and fuel prices and also national insurance and other taxes.
0: So getting rid of green taxes on our electricity bills, that is, 25% of the bill uh, goes in those social social obligation and green subsidies. Another 5%, of course, is VAT. I mean, they're the areas, surely... The Chancellor needs to look at if households are going to get real help.
1: Okay, well, let's take it in two parts, because I also think the national insurance part is very important. But if we take the energy and the fuel parts first, yeah, um, environmental levies are £9.2 billion over the next year. That's on average £325 per household. Um, I'm very much in favour of the green agenda, but I think the whole issue that's come to the fore now is about people's ability to pay. So if those environmental levies are to go, then they need to probably be transferred to general taxation. That's the challenge. What the Chancellor will focus on probably this week in terms of the whole fuel side is in terms of the fuel subsidies and fuel bills. Now, if he wanted to be bold, he could suspend them for a temporary period. But then if they're reintroduced, it's a pain, and it's going to hit people then. But if we take the current price of petrol, um, it's pound sixty-five per litre. Of that £1.65, 85.5 pence is tax, fuel levies and VAT. The Chancellor has indicated through the media that he's prepared to knock 5p off, adding the VAT, that's six pence off, so that price goes down from 165 to 159. So it's a small, but for lots of people, important impact. But there is much he can do, and indeed, he probably should be bolder than he would likely be. Then we've got the tax side as well. Shall I go on to that now, Nigel? You because do you think? I think that's where the real issue is. He should have, in my view, introduced the new national insurance uh, tax increase. For workers, it's going up from 12 and to 13.5%. For employers, it's going up from thirteen point eight to just over fifteen percent. So one and a quarter percent for workers, um, and one and a quarter percent for um, companies as well. Now, I think he should actually um, reverse that. He won't do that. He could delay it, but if he's not going to do that, then at the very least, I think he should actually try and raise the threshold at which people start to pay it. For instance, if you're paying income tax, your income tax is worked out over the course of a whole year. But it works out that over a normal week, it, you have to earn £242 in the new fiscal year before you start paying income tax. But you will start to pay the new national insurance if you're only earning £190 per week. So he could, and I think he probably will, raise that threshold. But coming back to your point, I think he's got lots to do. He can do something on levies and fuel. And also, I think he can and he should. And I hope he will do something on the overall tax side, particularly national insurance. Well, certainly, you know,
0: getting that threshold in line, that would be simplification, which I was urging in my talk at the start. A a final thought, please, Gerard. You know, looking ahead, the growth forecasts for the years to come are dismal. I can't think of any other word to describe it. Uh, What is it about this government? that makes them so reluctant, it seems, to call in, to cash in that Brexit dividend and to start getting rid of excessive um, EU regulation. It could be, for example, solvency two in the insurance sector. Is it, is it because they've been totally consumed by the pandemic or don't they really believe in supply side reform?
1: yeah i think there's a lot of institutional constraints the independent obr that produces the forecast is very cautious about the growth outlook the treasury which combines a budget office and an economic office so to speak is always about balancing the budget although they don't do that very well in a nutshell what we need is a pro-growth economic strategy that combines that brexit dividend and it means about the way to get the deficit down is not to raise taxes the way to get the deficit down is not to have austerity. We do borrow, sensibly, at low rates. We could have done that better by borrowing longer term. But the key issue is this. If the choices are borrowing, raising taxes, austerity, or going for growth, you should go for growth. And I think that we need to have a more of a pro-growth economic strategy, making the economy more competitive. That requires lower, not higher taxes. I don't think we're going to get that this week. The Chancellor might well touch on it, but maybe we'll have to wait for the budget later this year for the first real steps, hopefully, towards achieving that.
0: Gerard Lyons, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening here on GB News. Now fuel, filling up the car. One hundred sixty five ELISA for petrol, diesel, well it's more like one seventy seven, one seventy eight. Looking at the garages, I drove past earlier on this morning. Well, joining me is Howard Cox, the founder of Fair Fuel UK. Uh, Howard, without your campaign over the last decade, we'd be probably over two pounds a litre. Uh, but as it stands, as it stands, we're talking about roughly eighty-five p a litre is uh, tax when you include the VAT. Now, the Irish did cut fuel duties quite heavily, didn't they, last week?
2: Yes, something like 17 pence. And it's a privilege to be on your show again, Nigel. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, and so is Germany looking at that, Poland, uh, France, uh, New Zealand's cut uh, fuel duty. As usual, our uh, Chancellor is sitting on his hands. And he knew about this two months ago. He could have helped hard pressed motorists and small businesses uh, to uh, give some sort of respite. Um, And the other thing he's got to do is introduce uh, a body that will actually monitor the uh, opportunistic profiteering further up the fuel supply chain, because that's the issue that's really. uh, Hitting people in the stomach hard uh, in 2014 with the oil prices similar to now, even with uh, equivalent, you know, taking into account sterling exchange rates against the dollar, we're paying something like 15 to 20p more than necessary now. So a combination of fuel duty uh, being cut and a, uh, implementing pump watch that would be my nirvana uh, for Wednesday.
0: Well, we'll have to wait and see. I've no doubt he will do something, Howard, but I suspect it'll be a lot more cautious than the Irish government were. Now, there was an article in yesterday's Sunday Telegraph written by Liam Halligan, who of course is the economics editor here at GB News, and he made a really powerful point. He said, when oil started rocketing six, eight weeks back, we very quickly saw prices at the pump going up, and oil hit about $138 a barrel, was the highest traded price, and it's been back down to below 100, and yet we've not seen any reduction, not that I've spotted anyway, at the pumps. I mean, are are drivers entitled to think that there is racket profiteering going on here?
2: Absolutely, and I worked very closely with Liam on that article supplying him with the data, because in the space of just a week, we saw a fall from that one hundred and thirty eight to ninety eight something like forty dollars, and yet pump prices went up 10 to twenty p in that period of time. Okay, there is a lag time when oil was purchased, bulk fuels delivered, et cetera. but we're seeing this time and time again. It goes up like a rocket when oil goes up and it yeah. comes down like a feather, and yeah. not you know when oil comes down and it never comes down by the right amount or by the right timing. You're absolutely right. There is profiteering going on, and that's why we're calling on this body. We have off-gem, off-com, off-what. Why haven't we got off-pump? We call it pump-watch, and uh, Robert Halfham MP, the fantastic MP from Harlow, has put in an early-day motion calling for this pump-watch body, and five years of my campaigning, I hope we might see some fruit on Wednesday.
0: Well, we will get Robert Halfham on this show before too long, in that case. Final thought, Howard, and this doesn't affect a large number of people, but it is significant. Red Diesel. OK, yeah. that is diesel without a huge amount of fuel duty from the 1st of April. It's the, the duty is going up by 38 percent on red diesel. And that's going to affect a lot of businesses in this country with a knock on price for consumers. Just share your thoughts on that with us, please.
2: Well, absolutely. It used to be 11p per litre. In fact, it's going up to the same as white diesel. Uh, and, and this is going to affect construction workers particularly. Uh, most agricultural machinery is still exempt at the moment, but watch this space. But particularly construction workers, JCBs, all those building, all those construction workers, they've got to pay something like three to four times more the uh, tax than they've been paying before now. It's going to impact on jobs. It's going to impact on the cost of building. Everything to do with the economy in terms of fuel, in terms of fuel duty, in terms of that profiteering impacts on everything we do in terms of inflation, everything we buy. I'm afraid this government are going to wake up and smell the coffee and do something and motivate the economy. We're we're seeing diesel, for example, in Germany, France, uh, uh, Spain and Ireland, something like 15 to 20p cheaper than it is here. And yet the commercial heartbeat of the economy, diesel, is being...
0: Something, Howard, something has got to give. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. We're going to watch to see what comes on Wednesday with very great interest. In a moment, PO, those 800 sackings that were announced last Thursday, we we'll look at the protests here in London, I'll give you my thoughts. So what would you like to see from Rishi Sunak on Wednesday? Some of your responses coming in. Matthew says, permanent fuel duty cut of 20p per litre and VAT on petrol and diesel. He wants any increases suspended for 12 months. National insurance threshold brought into line with income tax over the next three years. Yeah, That does need to happen. That would be a good, sensible simplification. And that may happen, actually. Mark says, just a little something for pensioners would be nice, like a triple lock restored. I'm sorry to say, it isn't going to happen. Ron says, lower corporation tax for SMEs. Similarly, under the Conservatives, corporation tax has gone up. I don't think there's any prospect of it coming down, but I understand why you say that. Bob says, cut the 20% green levy. It's effectively doubled. Well, it has, of course, because of fuel prices. That's why, and you know, Gerard Lanz was saying this, it's going to work out now to about £325 per household per year. One viewer says, I'd like to see the foreign aid given to India stopped and given to Ukraine as they refuse to condemn Russia and will buy their oil on the cheap too. p and I was here last Thursday talking to you when we saw the 800 sackings. We hadn't got the full story. There's been a protest that took place in Parliament Square this afternoon and GB News' reporter Ellie Costello was there at those protests
3: you can hear the chants and the voices behind us of rmt unionists and sacked seafarers who on thursday were told in a pre-recorded message on zoom lasting not even two minutes that their jobs had been taken from them they were being made unemployed effective immediately and they were going to be replaced with cheap foreign agency workers. They are outside the Houses of Parliament this afternoon to protest against PO and their parent company, DP World. They want all of their contracts to, do, to be suspended until this situation is resolved. We can see at the moment there are banners, the RMT banners. I can read some of these signs saying save PO jobs nationalized now. At the front of this crowd is Jeremy Corbyn. He's standing alongside the RMC unionists. They are all calling for P&O to reinstate these jobs and to reverse their decision to sack 800 seafarers. Well, earlier I spoke to a seafarer who was sacked on Thursday. His name is Lee and this is what he told me.
4: Um, I was with the company for 30 years. I was a deck petty officer on one of the ships. Um, I was a maritime professional in in my eyes. I used to load the ship, do safety checks, uh, assist with navigation stuff. And on Thursday, the rug got pulled away from us. Uh, absolutely devastated for myself and my colleagues. I've got a young family. Um, I'm, Believe it or not, I'm not old enough to be looking at retirement yet. Um, and the offer that they, they've given me isn't even a seventh, a tenth of what I could earn in between now and the rest of my working life. It's an absolute disgrace. We don't want compensation. We don't want redundancy packages. We want our jobs back.
3: What do you know about the people who have replaced you? And What are your concerns about those replacements?
4: Well, what they've done, they've brought in cheap, very low-skilled labour um, with very limited row-row packs experience, which is ferry experience. Um, there's guys from Ukraine, Romania, Poland, India. The Indian guys, we're being told, on $1,600 a month and they want them to work an eight-week-on, eight-week-off rotation. Um, p itself has been told by the Car- University of Cardiff that the week-on, week-off rotation is bad enough and they should not be looking to extend it. And this was put to him in a a uh, fatigue study that they commissioned in 2013. All that's happened is we've had less people doing more work, so obviously that risk has not disappeared.
3: Well the question being asked is, is this even legal? Business Secretary Kwasi Kuateng wants those answers on his desk by five pm tomorrow. And Grant Shapps, the Transport Minister, is currently looking into the contracts with PO and their parent company DP World. Well, there is an understanding that legally PO were able to do this because their contracts were based in Jersey and therefore they came under international maritime law rather than the protections of of British employment law. But in the court of public appeal, this is not going down well. And you can see just by the sheer number of people that have turned out to this protest, that this is not going to go anywhere anytime soon.
0: Well, many thanks to Eddie Costello there following that protest. And, you know, understandably, people are very upset and very angry. These workers have done nothing wrong. PO was a thriving, successful business. It is not the fault of these workers that lockdown happened and PO took big losses. But here's the point DP World, the owner of PO, they were happy to take £150 million, weren't they? happy to take those furlough payments. And now, when business is getting back to normal and hopefully a really busy summer coming up, now they've decided to sack these workers, many of whom have worked for PO for decades and done a very, very good and, important to say, very safe job as well. And they're chucked on the scrap heap. They're given redundancies. They're told if they speak to anybody or they speak to the media, those redundancies will be cancelled. So one or two of those people in the crowd there today were taking a bit of a chance. This is outrageous. Now, I heard some idiots over the weekend on various media outlets saying, ah, this is all because of Brexit. No, wrong, wrong, wrong. We voted Brexit to stop these kind of things happening. We voted Brexit because we were tired of British workers in many sectors being undercut. That's was wrong and we thought with Brexit we would get a change. Well, I take the point that we have to deal not just with UK domestic employment law, but with maritime law as well. I do take that point. But there is quite an important sanction. It's a popular word these days, isn't it? There is quite an important sanction that we could put in place to persuade p that they've chosen the wrong course. And it's simple, the Chancellor has got plans for two really big freeports in this country. And P&O is part of that plan for these freeports. Rishi Sunak could say to P&O, you will be taken out of the freeport contracts unless you do the right thing. And that might be really very, very effective. Now, that would be a real, real big whiz-bang in the middle of his statement on Wednesday. I hope he thinks it. I, I really hope that he thinks hard about doing it. What about what the Farage moments? Well, this one, we're almost coming up for two weeks. On Wednesday, it'll be two years, I apologize, two years since lockdown was introduced. But it wasn't just that lockdown, there were subsequent lockdowns. And now questions are being asked about those lockdowns because according to the University of Oxford and the charity Collateral Global, The subsequent lockdowns were based on very dodgy data. Experts are now saying many who died early on in the pandemic never tested positive for coronavirus or died of something completely different. And we know that anyone dying within 28 days of a positive COVID test went down as a COVID death, even if three weeks after having COVID, someone was killed in a car accident. And the suggestion is, And Professor Carl Hennigan from Oxford University has really put his name to this. The suggestion is that those subsequent lockdowns were based on false, dodgy data that seriously overinflated the number of people who were killed with COVID or killed by COVID. One other report we saw suggested that only 17,000 people amongst those COVID stats had no other underlying medical condition. And I do... Yeah, I know Ukraine's going on. I know we've stopped talking about COVID because of Ukraine, which might suit some in certain quarters. But, you know, given that the fourth jab, I mean, can you believe it? The fourth jab is now being offered to elderly and vulnerable people. I think we need to ask some real questions about the data upon which lockdowns were based and perhaps a bit more honesty that if you have the jab, it makes no difference in terms of whether you can catch or pass on COVID. It just makes a difference in terms of you getting seriously ill. Now, in 2020, I spent several weeks in the USA. I followed the US elections. I think the Republicans do need to move on uh, and stop looking back at 2020, but now become very much the party for electoral reform to turn what happened into a positive. But there's one other aspect of that election that was disturbing. And it was the extent to which media, mainstream media, and social media did their utmost to make sure that it was not a free and fair election. Joe Biden is there. He's the president. He's coming to Europe this Wednesday. He'll go to Brussels. He'll visit NATO headquarters. He will visit the European Union institutions as well before then going on to Poland. Had Donald Trump been president, he would have been in Europe three months. Weeks ago. And yet we know that Biden has been spending his weekends in Delaware. He's supposed to be the leader of the free world, the main player in NATO. And frankly, this visit has come very, very late. But he became president, as I hinted a moment ago, because of totally one sided media. And much of this came from events in Ukraine. You see, Trump was impeached on the basis he wanted to find out the truth as to what Hunter Biden, Joe's son, had been doing in Ukraine. Why was he paid? Why was he paid up to $83,000 a month to work for oil and gas companies when he literally had no history in that sector whatsoever? And then a laptop emerged, a laptop that had been put in uh, to be checked, dealt with, cleared perhaps. A laptop emerged with a mass of information. It was, said Trump, in the election campaign, the laptop from hell, and yet when it came to TV debates, Trump was told we can't debate this. The New York Times doubted the provenance of the emails. Now the New York Times say they accept that the contents of a laptop belonging to President Biden's son, Hunter, are authentic and we're two years on. And anyone that can see that Biden's presidency is making the world a far less safe place. Anybody in those giant social media companies on the West Coast or those big, big newspapers and TV companies based mostly in New York ought to be hanging their heads in shame. It was not a properly held election. The media were almost universally in favour of Biden against Trump. Well, that of itself was okay, but they suppressed some very important truths. And of that, I have no doubt at all. Thank you, New York Times, for apologizing. Shame it took you two years. Some more reaction from you. Peter says, the triple lock reinstated. Now, I know lots of pensioners want that triple lock reinstated. I just don't think he's going to do it. Adrian says, I think the chancellor should remove all the extras from diesel, but only for lorries and vans taking food to shops and supermarkets. Keep the cost of food down to help everyone. Well, we haven't really seen, have we quite yet, uh, the food increases. Suggestions that maybe over 30% of our fish and chip shops may go out of business. And those cheap deals from McDonald's will become, at least for now, a thing of the past. What does Christine want to see Rishi Sunak say? Stop the green subsidies on fuel. Stop the new national insurance increase. Look at the quite, obviously I like this. Look at the quangos costing over 150 billion a year. Yep, yeah, and while we're at it, Christine, what about the vast amounts of government waste? What about, what about Lord Agnew talking about billions, billions that we've been defrauded during COVID? You know, if we sorted out the fraud, there'd be no need to raise national insurance. Robert says, I would like to see the large landowners having their generous subsidies cut substantially. Well, there's a big, big change to agricultural subsidy coming, uh, huge encour- encouragement for things such as rewilding, which, whilst it may sound really rather lovely, means we'll be producing less food. And I do wonder, energy security, I've talked about a lot on this program over the course of the last few weeks, the absolute need for us to be self-sufficient in energy. Maybe one thing that comes out of this war in Ukraine is we perhaps start to begin to think about becoming more self-sufficient in terms of the food we eat. Peter says, no amount of tinkering by Sunak will mask what is really needed, a full reappraisal of our ridiculous energy strategy of net zero by 2050. Yeah, and we talked about that earlier, you know, and Gerard Lyons said he's in favor of the green agenda. Well, that's fine, but it shouldn't be subsidized by ordinary households giving money as it has been for years to rich landowners and giant overseas multinationals. That is wrong. And if renewables are gonna work, they should work without subsidy. And I believe that very, very strongly. Now, Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley has had an extraordinary career in the British Army. He's a military historian, a lecturer, uh, and he's somebody with whom I'm gonna talk about Ukraine and many, many other things on Talking Pints in just a few moments. GB News Tavern has been declared open. It is Talking Pints. I'm joined by Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley, retired British Army officer, who was Deputy Commander of the NATO-led International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan and these days a military historian and many other things. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you very the much. Talking Pints. Love lovely to be here. Very good to have you here. Mm. Now, just looking at your army career. So we've got six tours of Northern Ireland... Five tours of the Balkans and all those different um, dif- different problems that we had there in the 90s. Two operations in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, one in Sierra Leone. They're the sort of wartime active ones plus, you know, a list as long as your arm of peacetime uh, ones. And you've got the DSO and various other... How many medals have you got? Uh,
5: about 18.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's rude. Do you, do you have to <laughs> have a sort of special sort of extra, it's, extra, it's, extra yeah. suit to wear No, them it's,
5: it's, it's just a lot of bad luck, Nigel. It's <laughs> wrong
0: place, wrong time, usually wrong order dress. <laughs> it's interesting, you watch Remembrance Day parades now and a lot of younger soldiers do have a lot of medals now because we've been a very active well, arm. Well,
5: they did have yeah. and,
0: and, until about eight or nine years ago. Yeah, But we're now back to where we were
5: in the Cold War where, um, where there were a, a few operations going on. And um, anyone below major or, uh, or colour sergeant has probably only got one or two.
0: OK, OK. So how many years in the army? 40, altogether. And the worst bits? Oh, the worst bits. Uh, um,
5: a, f- a few times in Northern Ireland, um, people have forgotten just how awful Northern Ireland was. You know, over 700 soldiers we lost, far yeah. more than all the other campaigns put together. Siege of Garazda in the Balkans, prob- probably the worst. And uh, boy, do I feel for people like uh, those in Mariupol, because I know what a siege is like. You know, it's scary some of the time. It's boring a lot of the time. But there is this constant feeling of isolation, of uncertainty, uh, of threat. And it generates an atmosphere uh, that you can touch. And it's
0: very, very wearing. Yeah, I'm going to come back to Mariupol, because so many news stories around Mariupol, I've been trying... Over the last few days to work out what the truth of it is, and we will come back to that. Okay. Yeah, obviously some very tough uh, situations that you were in, uh, but you wouldn't have stayed in it forty years unless you have enjoyed it. I joined
5: to do that stuff. I didn't yep. join to do tribal dancing on some parade ground in London. Um, I, I joined to get out there and do it. And uh, when when you when you do it, if you're if you're half decent at it, then you self-select for the next appointment. And it, that becomes your way of life. You know, I never served in the Minister of Defence or in the Permanent Joint Headquarters uh, or in Land Forces Command. Um, I always served in field, in field formations, uh, except when I was uh, in defence education.
0: You joined an army that Northern Ireland apart had been relatively quiet in terms of overseas engagements, then got very, very busy, and we become a little bit quieter again. But you all, were also part of an army that, in terms of manpower and in terms of of many resources you saw being cut and cut and cut again. And I've spoken to people from all three services who say it's been quite tough and quite demoralizing at times, realizing that somehow you're not really valued by government in the way that you used to be.
5: Uh, well, it's, it's, it's not just being- Is cut. that unfair me? No, I don't think it's unfair at all. Um, it's not, and it's not just being cut. Um, it was, we, we were being cut uh, even before the Tory government and the, and the coalition came in Um, Blair Blair just said, well, thanks very much for doing what you did. Do it again, but do it with less. And uh, and we did because we knew what we were doing. Um, But we've gone from being a big army that knew how to do big army stuff, move large quantities of materiel, people, obstacle crossings, logistics. um, And we've we've shrunk to the point where practicing and, uh, and doing that sort of thing in reality has gone away. And uh, it's, it's, it's not, you don't want to be launching an operation unless you've uh, prepared for it. And I think you're seeing some of this with the Russians at the tactical level. Mm. Uh, they're not very good, it seems, at stitching the, the combined arms battle together. And that's probably because, like us, they haven't practiced it.
0: And we sort of cut the army, and yet the Territorial Army, or now Army Reserve, as it's now known, well, that, was, that was asked to do more and more and more. But it's, again, it's
5: tiny. I, mean, when, I was, yeah. uh, when I first joined the, the Territorial Army, was getting on for 80,000 people, nearly as big as the regular army is now. And it had had been grown, um, having been cut back uh, 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 to about 20,000, but it had taken 10 years to get it there. Uh, But it was a very capable force uh, for certain specific uh, things. Uh, And it did uh, a lot of the the rear security during the Cold War. Uh, And in the wake of that, uh, I had a couple of territorial army units under command in Iraq. Uh, where they were, you know, they were very good yeah. um, for, for limited tasks, um, but now there's you know, just over twenty thousand of them, yeah. and the footprint's gone. Um, you can only have a big territorial army if you have a wide footprint. You have lots of TA centres. People won't travel thirty miles after work um, for a, for a couple
0: of. And this months. goes. I mean, we, you know, we're not just talking army here. We're talking about the yep. navy. We're talking about the air force. We're talking about all of our, all of our services. Now, what we have seen. And and I've I've looked on, as Westminster has just thought, defence doesn't matter, I've looked on at this. Now, Germany have performed the most spectacular U-turn. And I suppose like all things in politics, they say it, will they actually do it? I sense they actually will do it. I sense the Germans are about to reverse that policy, are about to have quite a big build-up. They bought into the mantra that, you know, peace comes through strength and not through week, And I certainly believe in that, I'm sure you do too. And yet we're getting rumors that in this statement straight budget on Wednesday, that Sunak is not gonna contemplate increased defense spending. How do you feel about that?
5: Well, I think it's madness. Um, Putin has shown his hand. Um, it would be very unwise to think that Ukraine will be the end of his ambitions. Nuclear weapons won't deter him because they're not usable unless there's a direct threat to our own, uh, to mm. our own territory. So how else do you deter him but by conventional strength? And and, and deterrence in the Cold War worked because we had credible um, and capable nuclear deterrence and we had credible and capable conventional forces. And and we've got to get on with it. We've got to get on with it fast
0: and do so under the umbrella of NATO. So we need to rebuild. Is is this the argument that we need to increase? I mean, because they say we're spending 2% just over.
5: Yes, but are we? Um, that figure includes things that back in the Cold War weren't there. It includes the nuclear deterrent, it includes service pensions. And right. a figure is meaningless unless it's tied to capabilities, because you could spend 2% of your GDP on defence and the whole lot could go on grass cutting and, mm. and, and, and painting furniture and stuff. Yeah. Unless you say, right, we're going to spend two, uh, 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 2% and we're going to zone in on in air, uh, air defence, uh, on maritime security and and, you know, we do need to look at maritime air um, as, as probably, and I say that as an army officer, it's probably the most important thing. Uh, we are going to invest in back, back into heavy armour and things like that and, and pin that money uh, to actual capabilities.
0: Do you have many supporters? Do you think increasing military spending at this, even given where we are now, do you think it has many friends in Parliament?
5: I think it's probably
0: got more than it did three weeks ago, <laughs> don't you? Yeah. No, I do. <laughs> I do, but it. It. I do, but it. It's been so low down.
5: Yeah, but the um, list of priorities no, of political is, parties. Um, armed forces are an essential attribute of statehood, as professors of Michael Howard rightly and famously said. They're one of the ways in which other nations define you, mm. uh, and they determine how they how they deal with you. Uh, And if you're militarily capable, people will respect you and they will deal with you properly. Uh, If if you're incapable, then they won't. And you you can see Putin's behaviour, looks at NATO apart from the USA and thinks...
0: Well, NATO, I mean, of course, Afghanistan was a NATO mission. Mm -hmm. Um, Joe Biden pulled the plug on it. Uh, We all wanted it to end, of course. It was a question of how it was to end. But the unilateral withdrawal without consulting NATO allies. I mean, quite a serious moment and and, and a big rethink going on, certainly in my mind, about whether the Americans are now gonna be reliable under Joe Biden or not. Uh, Biden finally coming to Europe this week, and I think he should have come three weeks ago, Mm -hmm. personally. But do you still think there is confidence in NATO as an organization? Yes, I do, Um, I really do.
5: the, uh, the American Army, for example, has reactivated the Fifth Corps and deployed the forward headquarters into Poland. Yes. Uh, they're deploying an and awful what, lot of... Sorry, to, yeah. to, to interrupt,
0: what, what size of strength is that?
5: An Army Corps would be
0: 50,000-plus oh, so it's, it's, it's a serious deployment. So yeah,
5: there's quite a lot of it still in the USA, but they're, but they're bringing more units yep. forward for nine-month tours. Um, I strongly suspect that they'll be permanently basing more, and, and not in Germany, further forward, uh, Romania, Bulgaria, um, Poland... The Baltic, the Baltic states. Um, there's a lot of air power being, being moved, um, which isn't being talked about, but of course that's the most flexible element of defence. And the Americans bring capabilities that nobody else has. And this is why European armed forces are such as, one of the reasons that it's such a barking mad
0: idea. Oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> President Macron keeps saying that the Ukrainian crisis shows the need for a European defence force. Is that so? Yeah. Well, it is so, according to <laughs> President Macron. Mm. Well, <laughs> uh, uh, I
5: don't think that a European defence force without American backing uh, would be able to face the Russians uh, for more than about ten minutes. Uh, doesn't have the numbers. Doesn't have the firepower. Doesn't have the. It doesn't have a whole a whole raft of things. And uh, it's really the Americans that, that that are the backbone of NATO, mm. and it's the Americans that that that
0: Putin. Uh, most fears. Okay. So you feel that, I mean, Trump, of course, you know, said some pretty harsh things about NATO. He turned yes. up in Brussels and said, look at this great big building. Why have we spent all this money on it? And, you know, why, you know, and why are you, why are you all delinquent and not paying your 2%? I, mean, I, I actually think he was right to say those things.
5: Yep. Um, he had a point because uh, one of the diseases of the post-Cold War NATO has been far too many headquarters and not enough soldiers. So yes, an and it
0: was all to do with the sort of the dividend, wasn't it, of the Berlin Wall coming down and everything. So you still feel that, that the Americans, whatever I think of Joe Biden, forget that, you still feel the, you still feel the Americans are committed to this? Yeah,
5: because, you know, I, I have the privilege of, uh, of doing a lot of work with the American military. Um, I served with them for, for a long time. I know them. Uh, the US military knows how to fight. It knows its
0: business. Yeah. Uh,
5: and it's a, it's a determined, dedicated, capable, professional military. And
0: they respect us enormously.
5: Yes, I mean, I'm not quite sure how it is that we're uh, repaying that respect at the moment by shrinking in the way we are and dumping so many capabilities. Um, how it is that they still still trust us, I'm they not do. sure. They do,
0: they do, they really do. Jonathan, we've got what's going on. Mariupol, we touched on earlier, a siege. Thousands of people uh, reportedly left Mariupol over the course of the last few days. No electricity, no internet, no mobile phones. They've all run out. Yes, uh, back to Gerasa in the 90s. I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we, we're told that thousands are being taken against their will as almost political prisoners and taken into Russia. The Russians say, no, 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 no. Mariupol is overwhelmingly a Russian-speaking area and they'd rather come for safety in Russia than stay in Ukraine. Um, I mean, look, there's nothing that Putin has done over the last few weeks that is good in any way at all. But when we see all these news reports, I bet there are a lot of people sitting at home now thinking, we see all this stuff. What are we to believe? Mm. Uh, well, there's an old saying in the military,
5: the first report is always wrong. Um, so I'm always intensely sceptical of everything, anything that I hear, first off, uh, and anything that is not corroborated by a series of, uh, a series of other evidence, uh, because it's too easy to get suckered by a deception, either misinformation, you know, error, Yep. or disinformation, deliberate misleading. And both are going on. And the Ukrainians are doing it, and the Russians are doing it,
0: and I bet the BBC is doing it too. <laughs> so be sceptical about everything. Be, be highly sceptical about anything. And we keep hearing all this about the Nazi Azov Battalion, and we hear about biolabs and all of these things. Um, and Ukraine is a very corrupt country, and I touched a moment ago on Hunter Biden and you know his involvement with Burisma, the company, and all the rest of it. And yet, when it really comes down to it, you know, Putin, who I thought was quite a clever operator 10 years ago, seems to have lost the plot completely. I mean, he's invaded Ukraine. The vast majority of Ukrainians in Western Ukraine do not want to be under Russian control. Can you see an ending to this? Is there a peace deal possible? Mm,
5: well, I, 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 mean, I agree. I think the whole thing is a massive strategic miscalculation. Yeah, yeah. But he's going to have to pay for that. Um, I think at the moment we've got to make a distinction between what's happening at the tactical level, where the Russians are often not doing terribly well, and what's happening at the level of the campaign. And it looks to me as if the Russians are sitting on most of what they see as the bargaining chips Mm -hmm. for the negotiations. It's now all about the negotiations. Uh, and uh, a, a deal is, is there on the table, we know. Yeah, uh, so and Putin's
0: agreed to meet Zelensky,
5: yep, we believe. Yeah, so uh, ha, ha, has already a deal been done with Zelensky? It's possible. Um, but uh, if they do strike a deal, uh, will Ukrainians who, have, who think they've fought the Russians to a standstill hmm. and are, have become very much awakened to their national pride, are they going to swallow the loss of the Crimea? And the Donbass and a corridor through Mariupol.
0: If peace is gonna come, they're gonna to have to accept some losses. They're gonna
5: have way. to yeah, they're gonna to have to compromise. And the trouble is that the compromise often leaves you being compromised. And there are some things that they won't be able to give up on. They they need to keep Odessa yeah.
1: and Yes. Russian yes. fleet yeah, of course. sitting there. Yes, yes.
5: Uh, they need to keep Kiev. Yes. But they're gonna lose an awful lot of their industry uh, and their natural resources as well, It's of agriculture.
0: Very difficult. Jonathan, we could talk for a long, long time. We, unfortunately, don't get the privilege of doing that, although (laughs) Talking Pints is longer than most segments. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for the service you've given the country. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Thank you. Right, it's Barrage the Farage. Who knows, maybe you've sent in some military questions too, so I've kept Jonathan here on standby as he should be. Fraser asks me, should Boris personally intervene with p ferries in order to help resus- reinstate unjustly sacked dedicated workers replaced by cheaper foreign workers? Well, look, uh, you know, Boris could. I think actually the stage is set. The stage is set for Wednesday for Rishi Sunak to say we are pushing on with these two big freeports. P&O were very much a part of our plans. Um, and whilst we are a global trading nation in every way, we will not, in Brexit Britain, we will not see our workers being abused by this. And I repeat the point. A lot of Brexit votes came on the back of the undercutting of British workers. This is unacceptable. Andrew asks, should we build up our armed forces and by how much? By how much, Jonathan Riley? Well, I think we
5: need to... uh concentrate on maritime air to start with, and, and it pains me to say that. There's an army man. Yeah. It really does. But, you know, back in the Cold War, we yeah. had a we had a fleet of, seven, of 70 or so frigates and destroyers, a large number of submarines, uh, and, and we had a very large and capable air force, air force that could look after our airspace yeah.
0: and our territorial waters. So that's the first that's, that's the key priority. Right, just keep going. Ken asks, should we have boots on the ground in Ukraine? Well, uh, not. I don't think so, do you?
5: Not right now, um, but if there is a deal, then maybe they'll, uh, there will be an agreement for an international monitoring force.
0: That's going to be a tough one Which to is negotiate. To tricky but it, to find but, somebody but interesting. neutral. Mm. Uh, one more to go. Right, a few seconds left. One viewer asks, who do you think would be the best peace negotiator between Russia and the West and Ukraine? I think Israel. A few seconds. Turks are doing a pretty good job. Turks are doing a pretty good job. There you are. You see... There are lots of possibilities. It won't be the American president because he has been missing in action. I'm done. Mark Stein takes over from me in a few moments time.